0: We all have that friend, family member, or ex coworker who quit their nine to five gig to become an entrepreneur. Or maybe they still work their day job and are pursuing side hustles with the hope that someday they'll make it big. It seems like everyone's working harder than ever these days, but is that really what it means to be an entrepreneur? Hi, I'm Lauren Simmons, and welcome to another episode of the Mind Body Wealth Podcast. Here's the thing, it's really sexy to call yourself an entrepreneur right now. It's why you'll see it on almost every Instagram profile, entrepreneur, boss, and my least favorite, boss babe. As a society, we associate being an entrepreneur with being independent and smart, a free thinker. It's the unicorn of careers, which is why so many claim it as an identity, even if they're clocking into a nine to five daily. In their minds, they're still an entrepreneur because they've always got something going on, a side hustle, a business plan with a friend, connections to somebody who knows somebody. Hear me on this, being an entrepreneur is far less about what you actually do and more about, you guessed it, your mindset. This is a show called Mind, Body, Wealth, remember? An entrepreneurial mindset is more than just starting a business, and it's definitely more than having or raising money. Here's a bit more truth. You can be an employee working a nine to five and still have that entrepreneurial mindset, taking risks, being independent, being a free thinker. When I was working on the New York Stock Exchange, I wasn't an entrepreneur. I was a paid employee making $12,000 a year. But I was thinking like an entrepreneur. I was ready to take risk, ready to disrupt, ready to push me and my coworkers to something better. And when I did leave the Stock Exchange, I used that mindset to create a career that's very different from the typical finance career. Want to hear from an expert entrepreneur? Today, we're talking to one of the best, meet Sophie Bacalar, co-founder of Fable and partner at The Collaborative Fund. At just 17 years old, Sophie was hired by a fixed income hedge fund. Now, if you don't know what any of that means or why it's important, that's okay. Here's what you need to know. Working for a hedge fund means dealing with bank and corporate bonds, convertible notes, and so much more. But what you really need to know is it's working with a lot of money that isn't yours in a world that is the very definition of the old boys club. Stop for a minute and imagine a high school senior managing pensions and negotiating trades. Sophie was that good, is that good? So good that her company kept her on while she went to college. Later, she launched a collaborative fund, a venture capital firm that invests in for-profit companies that have a social mission like Daily Harvest and Kickstarter. And during all of the craziness of 2020, she found time to found another company with her brother Jeremy. Her latest company fable is an e-commerce brand focused on solving problems for pets and their humans through thoughtful product design for everyday things like pet carriers and leashes. Talk about the entrepreneurial mindset in action, having a problem, and finding a solution. Now, let's find out what it means for Sophie. All right, Sophie, let's get into it. In your opinion, can someone be groomed to be an entrepreneur, or is this something that's just in you? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who would not anticipate being a good entrepreneur that
1: end up being very good ones. I do think there are certain qualities that are if you're a solo entrepreneur, are kind of hard to bypass things like having an appetite for risk or having kind of a steadiness uh, to your personality because there's just so much volatility. You need to be able to manage that (laughs) and get through it. There's such a wide range of the type of personality that ends up being successful as an entrepreneur. And ultimately, any personality where you have something that you're so passionate about and excited about that you will do anything to see it succeed and get to the finish line, you'll work around whatever little personality challenges come with starting a business. I often tell entrepreneurs who come and pitch to me at Collaborative Fund, I've seen thousands of pitches in my life, right? I've seen so many. There's such a range. And a decent percentage of them, you'd be surprised, come in and they're so nervous. They're like sweating, their voice is quivering, like ooh, almost having an anxiety attack right in front of me. And I always say, look, don't hide it. Don't ignore it. Don't worry about it. I've seen that so many times. And some of those people go on to start billion-dollar businesses. Be nervous. It's fine. I'm not judging your nervousness. I'm judging... I'm not judging anything, I guess, but I'm evaluating your business idea. And so don't let things like that get in the way. You don't have to be this prototypical,
0: like, you know, swab, smooth talking business person. Be human, be you. I love that. I do think the common denominator of most entrepreneurs, I would say is this And yeah, you basically said as well, but this hustle mentality, like you continue to move forward. You believe in your vision. You don't let external voices crush your vision because, oh my goodness, there will be so many people that will do that. So many. (laughs) When you were first hired at 17 by a hedge fund, what was that experience? Did you know what you were getting yourself into?
1: Yeah, I absolutely had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no idea what a hedge fund was at the time. I had great aspirations to be an epidemiologist. I wanted to go into public health when I was in high school. And getting this job at hedge fund was really a way to get out of serving fish at a seafood restaurant that summer, which was my backup plan. I had just gotten a job at this just horrible, divy restaurant to help pay for college in the fall. Then really just by luck, ended up getting this internship and then job at this hedge fund via a classmate of mine in high school. Yeah, again, I didn't know what a hedge fund was at the time. I knew that you had to be good at math. That was the only reason I got the interview is, you know, when you're in high school, everyone kind of pegs you as something. You get into a little box and I was the math girl. So that's how I ended up getting the interview and ended up ultimately getting the job. For a kid at the time, and especially a kid who loved math, it was very exciting. It's a lot of people shouting and picking up phones and doing deals and making trades. And you have to think on your feet really quickly. You have to do math very quickly in your head. And it was exciting. Um, And I think that's what kind of kept me going with it, even though it certainly wasn't my life's passion. It wasn't the thing that I was trying to do with my career, at least at the time.
0: Our paths are very similar. I didn't start as young as you, but I, I was fairly young. It wasn't my background. I studied genetics and um, had somehow pivoted into finance. And again, what I knew minimally was like being good with numbers, being good at math, which, you know, is a myth. I feel like a lot of people, in, not a lot of people, but there are a few people in finance that are actually not good at math and numbers. But that adrenaline rush to your point of being on a trading floor and having the opportunity to work around men is, is, is you take on so many learning lessons from it. To be in an environment where you are a minority and I'm not pushing to be the only minority in the room, whether that's women, whether that's being a person of color, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it does give you insight into how you know the, that world operates and how they move and how they strategize. Um, so for me, it it was, it was really exhilarating, but also to your point, it was not my life passion or purpose. Was there anything that you learned from the trading floor that you have been able to take with you now?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are definitely a ton of work lessons. One of which is you will make some mistakes. You'll make some massive mistakes and owning up to them as quickly as possible and addressing them as quickly as possible with full accountability. That is something I learned. The first month that I started trading, I think I made a mistake that cost us like 700
0: grand or something, which is
1: a crazy amount of money.
0: No, yours is pennies. My first mistake was three million. And I was like, oh my gosh. But accountability is the biggest thing. Like you can't blame anybody else. But then at the end of the day, you just deal with it, right? Like how do we move forward? How do we execute and go on? I didn't mean to cut you off, but I've been there and it's just like, (laughs) it's crazy.
1: It's a nightmare, and especially when you're a junior person just starting out and you don't have a ton of confidence, it's so scary. I mean, I remember I did address it immediately, thankfully. I didn't try to hide it. I went straight to my manager, and I was sweating, and my voice was shaking, but I told him. And I'll never forget his reaction, and I've taken it with me like every single day of my career, and as I've become more senior and started managing people myself, he was incredibly direct and matter of fact. And he's like, you have to be more careful. You can't do that again, but okay. And let's move on. And then he actually, when telling the rest of the partnership about it, he took a lot of the accountability on himself for not overseeing me a little more carefully. And he did mention that I had done it, but he really tried to take on the brunt of that. It's just, I always think about it and it's definitely become a lesson for me and how to manage people. So it was a good uh, teaching moment very early in my career. I'm kind of glad that it happened despite being just miserable (laughs) about it for a long time after. It's hard if you're a perfectionist in any career and you can't ever quite finish things, but in trading you you don't have that luxury. You got to keep moving. You got to actually execute. And so I think I've, I learned how to not ruminate on things for too long and not obsess over getting every last thing exactly perfect, but actually just getting, getting shit done.
0: No, really, that's all you can do. And I think we as women, we often will do the obsessing, we'll replay situations in our head over and over. And at and that was kind of alluding to what I was talking about earlier. I was like being in a room with majority men, well, I was the only woman, but being in a room with all men and learning how they process things. And one of the things that they don't obsess, and we have these direct conversations. We might even argue. We might even get mad frustrated. And then like the next five minutes, not as if we like skip a beat. And that's one of the things that I, truly embrace. And I try to use just in day-to-day life, like that moment was that moment, now we're at the next moment. And how do we just move forward in an optimistic, positive mindset?
1: You just reminded me of one other thing that I learned, which is hearkening back to your statement about not everyone in finance actually being good at math learning that a lot of successful people are not good at anything was an important lesson early on. And I think it helped me bypass some of that imposter syndrome that I know so many people um, in my life suffer from. It was like, honestly, a lot of these people that you encounter are like pretty mediocre just by being very successful. And I try to remind myself of that if I ever feel like I don't belong in the room, it's like, there are a lot of people who don't belong in the room
0: it's that but then it's also just like making it up in real time i previously had a boss where he was having a conversation and someone asked the question and i had been around him long enough to know when basically he was bsing an answer and just by the way that he like carried himself he had his shoulders back he held his head high he went on a 10 minute tangent of like Absolutely nothing. And I realized this, he has no idea what the question is or how to even answer it. And that was so eye-opening. And it made me feel, not just his question alone, but being in those rooms and those spaces and to say, like, everything's going to be fine. Like, I don't need to have my shit together. I don't need to have all the answers. It will work out. I will make mistakes. I'll move forward and I'll learn on this journey. Like, I don't have to have everything together. And I think at such a young age, you want to come up with this plan, A, B, C, especially if you're like very, you know, like me and you realize like adults, they're just, they're just all figuring it out as they go. It's so true. You see it on both ends of the spectrum with people who who are not super
1: capable. And then I'm sure we both had the privilege of working around absolutely brilliant, incredible very very talented people and they also don't really know what they're doing so it's it, it is a lot of adaptability i think is just such an important skill and learning to yeah as you say kind of maybe not make it up as you go but figure it out as you go just constantly be adapting to whatever new challenges are you know right in front of you
0: okay so you worked with managing money early in your life in your career what is your personal relationship with money like now
1: yeah, I would say that on the spectrum of risk tolerance, I'm about as extreme in my risk tolerance with money as it gets, which is good and bad. I think that stems partly from seeing how cyclical the economy and even personal finance can be pretty early on in my life. And so this just kind of, I don't know, acceptance that they're going to be ups and downs just made me pretty risk tolerant. So I've Started, you know, three companies at this point. That's always an extremely risky thing to do. I still actively trade my own portfolio. I, when you are a trader, you have to have some amount of risk tolerance if you're going to be any good at it. So yeah, I'm realizing that a lot more, especially at this stage of my life. Um, and the more that my friends and colleagues and extended network feel more comfortable talking about money and just seeing how they think about money. I don't know that I fully appreciated how risk tolerant I was until I found out how risk intolerant most people are, which is good in a lot of ways. But generally, if you want to generate excess wealth, you have to take some risk. But I think it also stems from a place of I don't need or care about that much money. I think I learned that through a number of personal endeavors, but it makes you a little more risk tolerant if you know that you know, I I just don't need that much. So if I lose it all, it's okay. (laughs) I'll manage.
0: So then I would say, and let me not assume, but how big of a motivator has money been for you along your entrepreneur journey? And if it's even a motivator at all, because you just said, you know, not at all zero,
1: you need enough money to survive, but making money is absolutely not a goal for me. And in fact, I really tried when I left trading and sort of made this really conscious effort to shift my priorities and think about money differently to say, this is the cap of how much money I'm ever going to make in my life. If I go beyond that, I need to stop.
0: Really? That's so beautiful. It's like a
1: handbag. If you have a really big handbag, you're going to fill it. If you, <laughs> As you make more money, you'll find excuses to spend that money. And you'll just keep going and going, and then you'll need more and more.
0: For some people. Yeah. I get what you're saying 100%. Like, yeah, capping yourself, which I think is a very, like, Eurocentric mindset to have. Like, they have such a, like, a healthy work-life balance over there. Money isn't the priority. It's like having a fulfilled, purposeful life, you know, in Europe versus America, where we're like money, 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 keep growing, keep growing. How can I obtain more and more things? And I think my mindset is, like, somewhere in between. I definitely believe in growing my money. I wouldn't say money at this point in my life is a motivating factor, but I still have goals. And with those goals, I'm still intentional about the lifestyle that I live. I think we think about it very
1: similarly. And I definitely have very much the anti-European, very New York attitude of I don't focus on leisure very much. It's all about goals and success and driving forward. I definitely suffer from that obsession just that my metrics for goal for my goals and for success aren't financial necessarily they're just different keep trying to make more and being more successful it's just you hit a point where it's as long as you're keeping your lifestyle kind of similar then that it's just gravy it's extra that you can use for exactly the things we're talking about savings retirement donation for you know just
0: Or investing in new companies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You've sold some of the companies that you've started. Talk to us about that and how you got to the moment of selling your company. And was that the intention when you started?
1: Yes, that was the intention. I started three companies. We sold one of them. That company is called Digit. It was an enterprise SaaS business. Um, basically data visualization software for management consultants. So like the sexiest thing that you could ever do. And yeah, when we started the company, we made a list of four to five potential acquirers for that business and a plan for what the KPIs, the key performance indicators we thought we would have to hit in order to go out to those acquirers. So that's kind of unusual. It was an accelerated experience because we started the company, ran the company and sold the company within two years. And so in some ways, it's a little bit more like launching a product that then you sell to a company. But yeah, we were pretty targeted on who we thought was going to want to acquire us and what our value proposition was going to be to them. This was the first business. And so at the moment that we were going out to acquirers, I had no idea what that was going to be like. How do you even meet these people? How do you get in contact with somebody? And how do you say, do you want to acquire my startup? (laughs) That just seems like such a... It's such a weird conversation to have, but I don't know that I would necessarily recommend this, but that is ultimately exactly what I did. I cold emailed people. Often I would cold email engineers, actually, like pretty junior engineers at these big companies and talk to them about the product and be like, oh, isn't this cool? Don't you think your company could use this? Can you intro me to your CEO? And that was just you know the CEOs just don't read their cold emails as much so it was a little easier to get into somebody a little bit more junior and then get buy-in from them and then if they were close enough with somebody senior they could ex- they could um bump me up to them we didn't have investors actually we bootstrapped that business so if you have investors i think that is actually one value add is they can generally help you navigate an M&A process a little bit more professionally than, than just cold emailing engineers but Hey, whatever gets it done, right? We got it sold. So don't
0: knock it. For my audience who may not know what MA is, mergers and acquisition. (laughs) But yeah, I love that and that's so aspirational in so many different ways. People that are listening, I don't think you guys realize how much of a feat that is. And especially, and I hate like saying the elephant in the room, but being a woman and doing that, it has so many challenges. So I mean, goodness, Sophie. It, like kudos, like amazing. I mean, I know you don't need me to say that, but like- that's... Oh
1: no, thank you. I mean, these are the kinds of things that in the moment feel like you're scrambling to survive. <laughs> you're like, I, we, we're we down to our last penny. We have to sell this business. I'm emailing everybody and it's just chaotic. And then the actual process of selling the business and the legal hassles are just so overwhelming that you I think,
0: forget kind of that it, it is a hard thing to do and it's something to celebrate. Do you have a vision board? Like, how do you come up with your ideas or some of your big goals? Is it more like strategic, like, okay, I'm starting the 2021 year and this is what I want to do? Or is it something that you have a journal? Or can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, actually, all of those things. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a crazy avid journaler. That's one of the things that I've done basically my whole life. And I find is just one of the easiest and best ways to find gratitude in your life, and also slow down your life a little bit. It's like I think when you are spending the time to recognize every single day has something to it that is worth noting in your journal, and also doing a little extra introspection, the days don't fly by the same way. People are always saying to me like, "Oh my gosh, Phil, the year just..." blew by it. I didn't do anything. I never really have that sensation because I think I spend a lot of the time in the moment. And then I don't have a, a vision board that's visual. So I guess it's a dictation board, but I have kind of a, a sheet in my journal that I keep, which is kind of a vision of what a perfect life would be and what I most want my contribution to the world and also my everyday life to look like. And so it's just something that I can I keep fine-tuning and making more and more specific and driving towards. I think it's helpful, even though it's constantly changing, (laughs) to just have that orientation. Yeah, I just think it's very easy to be busting your ass and like really, especially in New York City, to just be driving towards something and then to get there and then find the next thing to keep driving towards. And so knowing that when you achieve certain goals or when you get closer and closer to that vision, Again, to celebrate them and acknowledge that you did it and enjoy
0: it. I definitely have a gratitude journal that I dedicate no matter if I'm drunk or if I'm like sleep deprived. Every single day I make a note to write at least one sentence. And I mean, I usually write way more than that, but one sentence of like something I was grateful for that day. But it was, especially in a place like living in New York City, achieving some of my goals that I had my journal. And then I would have this high of like, oh my God, I achieved it. And then the next day, like, okay, so what's next? And if I'm being honest, I think to this day at 27, I I still work on it, but it's something that, you know, very intentional about and want to get out of this phase of like having this high and then having this like immediate low the following day. But I think in some ways what helps is having that gratitude journal and especially when i go back i just finished a notebook yesterday and i started a new notebook today and i didn't go back and read the whole journal this 400 pages but i was just skimming some of the my entries and i'm like oh my goodness like i did this which is you know so crazy to to think about so you talked about how you've started several businesses with your siblings what is it like working with your family how do you navigate the personal professional relationship boundaries in terms of working with family
1: i think it's a very different dynamic than working with a friend or a stranger but there's often a stigma against working with family it's one of the it's one of the questions that a lot of venture capitalists will ask often it's a it's not a red flag at least a yellow flag But it's shocking to me because when you look at business historically, first of all, let me just say business is incredibly personal. Anybody who says otherwise, at least in the startup world, it's incredibly challenging. And so there's emotion involved. There's just no way that you can escape that. It's an emotional business. So there's going to be emotion involved regardless of who you're working with. For my perspective, The thing that's most important with a co-founder at least or somebody that you're working with very, very closely in a business is you want to, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, you want to address things very quickly and move on from them very quickly. You get a few seconds to deal with something. There are always problems. You want to be able to just address it and move on. And for me, at least, I have a lot of siblings, but that is a sibling relationship. It's like you have trained your whole life for quick fights and quick recovery. That is like the training ground for a founder relationship. Whereas if you're working with a friend or somebody that you only have a professional relationship with, you have to spend a lot of time kind of tiptoeing around things and measure language and worrying about, are you going to send them? And you have no backup plan, so you better make sure that it works. For the sibling, it's like there's a problem, we address it immediately. Maybe it gets heated and it will get emotional again because it's business is emotional and it will happen. But we know how to bounce right back from that because we used to, you
0: know, kick each other in the face all the time and then go back to playing.
1: So we know how it
0: works. If you had one smart money secret to share, what would it be? Don't keep all your cash in your checking account. <laughs> Invest it. <laughs> This
1: is a shocking revelation to me that I've only discovered in the last five years or so that so many of my friends who are incredibly brilliant and successful and keep an incredible amount of just cash sitting in a checking account. I've had to convince people recently to start investing their money. I mean, there are a lot of avenues for investing cash that are very safe and
0: will get you some return.
1: (laughs) Keeping all your cash in a checking account is like just keeping your cash under a mattress.
0: Nobody should be doing
1: that these days.
0: No. Can you just give a few examples of where to invest?
1: Yeah. I mean, just any uh, robo-advisor. I always recommend Betterment. I think Betterment is great. But yeah, it's very easy to do quick onboarding and put in your goals and your risk tolerance and invest in something that's relatively safe. Don't put all your money, all your savings into stocks, but you can easily find a portfolio that's pretty low risk, but will get you something over just, yeah, cash.
0: Thank you so much, Sophie. I really appreciate your time. And I love how dynamic this conversation was. And this was fun. And I'm so grateful for this conversation today.
1: Me too. Thank you so much, Lauren.
0: I want to go back to something very important for any entrepreneur, something Sophie and I talked about, gratitude. Gratitude for the places we've been, and gratitude for this crazy world of entrepreneurship we're in, and maybe you're in. So my personal favorite, I recommend keeping a journal like Sophie and I do. Because often, especially as women, we tend to discount the things we've done. I'm talking money moves, achievements, entrepreneur moves, even personal milestones. You might not need a journal, but it's always good to take a moment. What have you accomplished? What have you been grateful for? What have you learned? Gratitude is part of the practice of reflection and that is how you grow. It's vital to your success. I'm young, but I've realized that life is a loop in so many ways. You're gonna find yourself in similar situations over and over again. That's going to happen in a nine to five. That's going to happen as you build a business or two or three. That's going to happen in relationships and even in friendships. Are you learning as you go through these similar situations over and over without a reflection practice? It's hard to allow the lessons to really sink in. I want to close this episode by giving you what I believe are the three aspects of the entrepreneur mindset. One, you have to have self-awareness. You know who you are. You realize that you know yourself better than anyone else, and that will serve you. You won't allow external voices to come in and change your mind. You won't allow no to stop you. Number two, you've got pure grit. You will stop at nothing to achieve your goals. You won't give up at the first no or the 100th no. Number three, you trust your journey. You realize that the universe has your back and has all the answers you need. All those no's, roadblocks, etc. are all detours in the right direction. Be open and adaptable. Have a plan, go over that plan, and then throw the plan away. So, even though you might not think you're an entrepreneur right now, you can get there. You have to be willing to think bigger, take risks, and learn from your mistakes, and reflect and grow. It's a mindset and it's a beautiful place to be. Join me, Lauren Simmons, on our next episode of Mind Body Wealth, dropping next week. Be sure to follow Mind Body Wealth only on Spotify. Until next time. Mind Body Wealth with Lauren Simmons is a Spotify original production from Best Case Studios. It's executive produced by Lauren Simmons and produced by Ayana Angel. From Spotify, executive producers are Gina Delvac and Jifa Yador. Producer is Tierra Darnell. Executive producer for Best Case is Adam Pincus. Our associate producers, Ali Gallo, Aaron Allen, and Stephanie Geary are the editorial directors. Our editor is Dean White. Thanks to Marmoset and Five Alarm for this music. And special thanks to Kevin Pham, Lauren Chin, Colin Frederick, Hannah Lebowitz-Lockhart at Best Case, Evan Tarantino, Free Bird, Amanda Long, Jordan Toczynski at Spotify for production support, and Ashley Acevedo and Arabella Roberts at Artists First.